You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven and Arthur Parkinson. Arthur, in fact, is going to take a bit of time off because he's got two wonderful books that he's working on. One's about to come out really quite soon, which is about hens, his passionate love, as well as gardens. We've often talked about his hens. It's called Chicken Boy, and it's very autobiographical about his long and loving relationship with hens. And that's really exciting out in April. The next is a companion book to his absolute romping bestseller, The Flower Yard, which is The Flower Yard Journal. And that's what he's going off to write now because that's out in the autumn 23. So it's a follow-on, really, of the things that he's learned and the new plants that he's grown. So that is why, for the next few months at least, it'll be me, but I won't be on my own, apart from maybe occasionally. I'll mainly be with other gardening friends and colleagues and with Josie, the head gardener here, sometimes Adam, my husband, and lots of other people who you'll have seen previously or won't have met already. Today, you've got me, Sarah Raven, and you've got Gary Newell, who is our head horticultural buyer, who has actually been with us over seven years now, which is so nice. And the reason that I really wanted to have Gary on the podcast, and I hope every so often, is that whereas I'm a sort of cut and come again, productive, obsessive, he's very much more into his perennials and his sort of mixed borders, shrubs, perennials, trees, but particularly he really keeps incredibly up to date on new perennials coming onto the market that are, that have been bred to be longer flowering or more disease resistant or just even more beautiful than their predecessors. So I just thought it'd be really interesting for everyone to carry on our best of 12. And one of the things that Gary is so knowledgeable and brilliant about is small gardens. So whether you live in a village or a town or a city, it's just like if you've got a small back garden, what are the 12 absolutely cracking plants that really all of us should think of including. And so between Gary and I, we're going to draw you together our top 12 lists. And of course, these will all be in the podcast notes. So welcome, Gary. It's really lovely to have you here. Hello. Thank you for having me. Not at all. So tell us a little bit, Gary, about your own private garden and how you got into gardening, I guess. So so give the listeners just a bit of your background and how you came to us and you know, how many of you live at home? And so so we all get a picture of who Gary is. Sure. Yeah. So I started gardening back when I was 16. I did a work placement at the Hampton Court flower show and sort of fell in love with the whole atmosphere. And working with plants was a bit of a passion for mine that just discovered it on the off chance. And so I uh, went forward, followed sort of an artistic route, went to art college and at Falmouth College of Arts, they started doing a sustainable and environment design course where I sort of specialized in landscape design. And then from there, I went to work for a plant nursery called Hilliers and eventually ending up as uh, the plant buyer for Sarah Raven, where I'm now the senior horticultural buyer. So plants are my main thing, but 
also, like you say, you're very much focused on a cutting garden and the edible side of things. I'm more about landscape and longevity yeah. and sustainability and really working with different plants coming through communities of plants and how they work together, giving people the best sort of experience from their garden, I suppose. Yeah. And whatever size, isn't it? I mean, the thing is, it's all very well for me because I've got a garden of an acre and a half. But so I don't have to be super, super selective. But how big is your garden at home, Gary? Well, at the moment, I've been in my current garden for two years and it's still work in progress. It's it's got a lot bigger than what it used to be. I had a small garden for about 10 years and I really missed that small garden because I'm struggling with the size of garden I have now. Ah. So let's talk about my previous gardens I have fond memories of and I can sort of guide people on how to deal with them. I'm struggling with the larger garden at the moment, to be honest with you. So I do sort of think back and think, oh, I wish I still had my small garden because I loved how you could be so focused on the detail. It's such a small space and you can control it really well. With a big garden, things get out of hand so quickly, as you'll know. (laughs) If you leave it for a couple of weeks, then all of a sudden it's like, I I, I need a team to help me get it back into shape. Whereas a small garden, you can really focus on the areas and uh, edit it and maintain it how you want it. That's so interesting. So talking about your previous garden, what sort of size was that in terms of feet or meters, whichever you prefer? I think it was probably about six meters wide by maybe 10, 15 meters long. Okay. So enough room for a patio and a small lawn and then board as well. Now I'm probably looking at, it's about a third of an acre. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Have you got the sort of classic lawn and borders around it and a bit outside the house sort of thing or? It's great. Yeah, we have plenty of space at the front and the back. There's room for the, the greenhouse and the kitchen garden as well and Obviously, the trampoline for the children yeah. <laughs> is essential. Yeah. And we have the lawn to play football on. And then my plants find a bit of space towards the edge, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very much a family garden these days. Yeah, absolutely. Because you've got two kids, haven't you? I have, yeah. Okay. Well, because today I really wanted to focus on small gardens, let's keep that in our minds and think if you were back to your little garden. And with me, I always think of the Dutch yard here at the back, which is actually partly in shade. But whenever I'm sort of thinking small garden, that's that's what I think is the space that I want to really carefully choose my plants for. And so do you have any sort of general guiding principles that, that it's worth sort of passing on to people before we move on to our list of 12 must-haves? Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first started to create my last garden and it was very much about selecting the right palette of plants from the beginning yeah, and not wasting time buying single specimens here and there and gradually building up. I wanted to get it all right from the start and then let it develop at the same time together. Yeah. So I stripped the garden bare and started from scratch. Right. And I had a very much large interest in self-seeding plants at that moment. So I put in the structure first. I was very keen to get a high point in the garden. So for me, It's either a large shrub or a small tree, one that you can maintain quite easily with either through pollarding or pruning. That gives you the focus in the garden and creates great scale, especially in a small space. Yeah. So from that high point, then you'd work down to a a sub-shrub structural lever, which holds the the form of the garden together, if you like, through the winter months. Yep. And then beneath that, I call it the ground cover which isn't necessarily your low-growing plants. It's more the self-seeding plants, which will literally cover the ground for you. And so I would always start with a palette of self-seeding plants 
create a matrix of planting and then let them just take over the planting of the garden, almost letting the garden control itself and you edit it as you go through the years. And it generally develops into a more wild or naturalistic looking space. And that approach, a lot of people would say, is not for small gardens, it's more for a larger landscape. But I was very keen to see if it would work in a smaller landscape and it certainly did. Oh, brilliant. It kept me interested and kept me busy, like I say. You can edit it, you can create it how you want, but at the end of the day, the garden changes every year and you're getting different uh, forms of patterns of seeding throughout the year. You get growing in areas that you didn't expect, so through stonework you'll get your rigor on, you'll get the bascoms coming up in all sorts of places, and it just creates that lovely sort of romanticized vision of a, of a cottage garden, if you like, of where the plants are slowly taking over, and that was always my approach for, for, the, for the small garden. Fabulous. I, I love the sound of that. So for your top layer, are there, are there one or two trees that, that you would particularly recommend that you had good experiences with? For the top layer, I, well, I think there's so many to choose from, but what you want to get out of that tree shrub, if you like, is the, the year-round interest. So you're looking at foliage color in autumn, you're looking at the berries, you're looking at flowers, and if there's anything else extra, even better. So when you think of those things, I was always drawn to Amalankia. I yeah. know you love Amalankia as well. I, I love um, it. And it's, it's so good with, it copes with pollution, it copes with wet, boggy ground. It just, it's a really good, trusted tree, I think, and one that responds well to pruning if you're scared of it getting a bit out of control. Yes. And I love the thing that you can get it to be multi-stemmed. So, I mean, from the moment that you get it, you can just take out the central trunk, can't you? And then, and then it just almost like a coppice tazel, it just breaks from the base, doesn't it? And, um, I, that's how I have them here. And I absolutely adore, there's, there's about, um, I think it's in June. It's incredibly early, but there's about a week that we have three multi-stemmed amelanchies in the Dutch yard here. And there's about a week where there's just an absolute sort of, party of blackbirds both the female and the male just feasting away on these very very early bright red sort of crimson scarlet berries tight they're quite small they're like beads but there's just this absolute feasting fiesta and then they're gone but you know it doesn't matter because it's a sort of great performance a sort of opera while it's going on and the great thing about the shape that they form as well is the habitat that they create underneath them. So if you've got a small garden, you want to create lots of different areas of light so that you can try different plants. And underneath, you can plant for the more shade-loving species like your hostas, your ferns, epimediums. It's really important within a small garden to create those different areas so you get that different look. Absolutely. Any others? Or is there another for that sort of first top layer that you that you were keen on what did you have in your in your old garden i actually had a sambucus ah, so okay i chose sambucus because they're quick to establish and i wanted to get the height as quick as possible i couldn't really afford to go out and buy an instant 10 foot high tree so yeah. you want something that's going to grow quickly and give you that height so sambucus nigra was what i had and again easy to prune and train and keep into control uh, but likewise it can grow six foot in one year once it's established yes so it gave you that instant established feel to acquire a new garden and berries flowers scent you know it had all all the things that you look for yes and and so you were pleased with it you you thought it was very worthwhile definitely yeah great and so um we're going slightly off piece but we're 
what we thought we were going to do, which is our 12. <laughs> but uh, hey, so what? Tell me your next layer down then and, and I might chip in, you know, as, as we go through. So we've got our one and two already on our yep. list now. So Amalankia and Asambucus, which is an elder, of course. And then you, you go <laughs> next, Gary. So the next layer, I've sort of called it the sub-shrub layer. Um, it's like a, a structural mid-layer, which gives you structure and it holds the form of the garden throughout the rest of the year. If you're relying on a lot of perennials, then you need something to keep the shape of the garden. So this is sort of the, the mid-layer where I tended to use, as if it's a small garden, you don't want to use heavy, thick-set evergreen shrubs because they just dominate the space and they make it feel a bit, bit gloomy. Yeah, So because so it's, it's a smaller scale... I would quite often look at things like the, the uh, woody salvias. Yes. One of my favorites was Phyllis Fancy or Amethyst Lips, ones that can get to a, you know three to four foot high and they have that woody structure to them. And as you know, they just give you flowers for so long a period. So long. Then when they're still flowering, we're here and we're in, you know, end of December. This is going out at the beginning of January, but we're recording at the end of December. And I've still got salvias here. I can't believe it. I've got Involucrata, Hadspun. There's actually still a little bit of flower on Amistad. And um, yeah, that's great. Now, you see, I wouldn't have thought of those as a subshrub. So I'm learning from you. I'm loving this. Yeah, things like the the Greggii types, they're all woody, herbaceous yeah. uh, subshrubs. I mean, we sell them as perennials, but when you look at how they grow, they, the structure does stay above ground for the whole year yeah so if you don't prune them they can get quite large and would you propagate those gary because would you know they're not a hundred percent hardy or do you think in a in a town or city garden particularly further south they are going to survive fine yeah i mean i'm very lucky i'm fairly south and um surrounded by buildings so i was quite sheltered if you like from it all but um i think certainly the 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 woody types they're very very hardy these days and that's how they get to the heights they get to because they're not dying back like they used to as you mentioned involucraft amistad yes i think a lot of people will struggle to get them through winter what a lot of people don't realize is they're actually tuberous so they will come back like a dahlia but quite late in the year um they won't hold anything above ground okay Okay. So it's worth being patient. Never think you've lost them, I'd say. Always give them time. And Black and Bloom famously is, is a bit hardier, isn't it? Yeah. Speaking to nurserymen across the country, they always prefer to grow Black and Bloom out of all of the uh, Garantica type salvias, which is your Amistad, things like that. So they feel that uh, emerges earlier in the year, it flowers earlier, and they're much more happier carrying it through the winter as a, as a potted plant. Okay, good, good. Excellent. Well, I'm going to add a subshrub there, which I have banged on about quite a bit. So it's really lovely to have some new blood in the podcast with some new plants. But it's the rosemary, which I, I go on about a lot in my teaching days. I always put a slide up because I think wherever I was, even if I had literally a sort of two meter by two meter little backyard, as long as it got a little bit of sun on one wall, I would put three rooted cuttings of a rosemary like Vatican Blue, which honestly just never seems to stop flowering here. And we have a slotted bench and just the three rooted cuttings come up through the bench, through the seat part and the back and the arms. And then whenever you sit on it, you give by your bottom and your back, you give it a, a natural prune. And so it needs no care whatsoever. We mulch it with grit over the top so there are no weeds. And if they are, you just get a little bit of self-seeded fennel, which actually combines really beautifully. And it's definitely 
wherever I was, wherever I lived, I would definitely have a bench sort of just completely enveloped in rosemary. And I think that counts as a sub shrub, doesn't it? So we can put that in there. I would definitely say so. Yeah. Evergreen as well, obviously, which gives you more structure to the garden. Exactly. Okay, so that's plant four. So then what about down to, or perhaps we'll do a pot in front of it, Gary. So what would you then put in a pot in your small garden? You know what? I tend to avoid pots in my garden because I'm terrible at watering. I hate watering gardens. And when it comes to containers, I always feel like, oh, I'm going to forget to water that. But I've started off with a load of lovely containers and I put in some Arismum red jet. Ah, yes. And it's a perennial wallflower. And sure enough, I, I'm sure I probably did forget to water it, but it thrived amazingly. And it was the, always the first thing to come into flower in the garden as well. You could almost go out there late February and see the buds emerging on it. And those buds would keep on coming all the way up to September. Brilliant. And if not further, to be honest with you, an absolutely amazing plant. Sometimes when the flowers would start to go over, I'd give it a slight prune. Yeah, put it back, and then you get a new flush of buds. But I was—I couldn't believe it every year how much that plant flowered. And true, they are short-lived. If you like, it might only live for three to four years. But the amount of flowers that you get out of it in that period is unbelievable. And the thing that I like about that variety so much compared to other hybrids is that it will sell seeds. So much like your Arismum bowls mauve, it it will sell seeds throughout the garden. So it started off in a container, but mm. gradually moved into the garden as well, which was lovely. Wow, I just didn't know that. I'm definitely adding that onto my list. So I'm going to get for here. Great scent as well. Yeah. Really good scent. Yeah. So it's it's sort of a descendant of bowls mauve, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's a linear folia, I think the genus is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The species. But it, it just keeps going much, much longer. And it the bowls mauve tends to get a little bit scraggy and, I don't know, just looks a bit messy after a bit, even if you... And then what I found is by pruning it back, I actually killed it. But red jet, I think, is is much more easy to handle, isn't it? It's it's timing, I think. I think as okay. soon as you start to see the flowers fade, you then prune it and not prune it too hard, not into the old wood. You're pruning into the new growth still. Um, and then that will push out nicely and cover up the bony structure underneath and it will keep producing flowers for you. Okay, great. All right. Well, I'm going to add one for a pot, which would be plant six, I think. But actually, I'm afraid I'm going to cheat and add a plant seven because I'm going to put something with it. And that is, I'm going to go for the dahlia waltzing matilda. I mean, there are just so many dahlias that are really suitable to compact spaces. And actually, the longer dahlias are bred, the more there are available um, that are you know relatively compact. But the thing that you don't want from a dahlia is that it feels too compact and rather uptight because they have such showy flowers. They end up looking like what I think of as a Shetland pony who's won too many rosettes at the Gymkhana. <laughs> and it's kind of got, you know, so many rosettes on its face. You can hardly see its eyes. But I feel Waltzing Matilda's got a grace and a dignity and it is really flowery, but not sort of over the top. Anyway, I would always poo that, whether it was in a container, I have it in a terracotta pot, but also I would have it in a sunny spot at the front of a border. But I would interplant it with some kind of silver birch structure supporting, but also over which it can climb with the petunia that I'm totally in love with called Tidal Wave Red Velour. And we've had it growing this year 
with the minilobata or ipamilobata. And what we found is that the they sort of grew to join each other. So the minna was growing up, but also so was the petunia. And so you've got this wonderful mix of those curly, they're called Chinese pagodas, aren't they? Flowers of the minna, but with the big, velvety, wonderful crimson-colored petunia flowers of the tidal wave red velour. And I think that combined with Waltzing Matilda, I'm being quite greedy now, so we're only going <laughs> to claim one plant on the list here, which is the Dahlia Waltzing Matilda, but I'm cheating a bit by adding two, growing up a kind of nice wayward, relaxed silver birch or willow frame of those two other climbers. Yeah, the, the Tidal Wave series is a fantastic series as well. If you yeah. plant it near a wall, it will naturally just climb up it to about three foot high. They're so vigorous that there's... Yeah. Nothing quite like it in the other petunias out there. I think it's certainly one to remember. And you can grow them from seed. So, you know, what I find is... It's um, all seed raised, yeah. Yeah. So they're really, really cheap to have in the garden. And um, I always think it's worth just recapping when you've got... Because it's relatively expensive seed, so you must store it in the right conditions, which, of course, is cool, dry, and dark. And we have a Tupperware box in the bottom of our fridge with a silicon sachet, which is one of those dehydrating sachets that you get with trainers and, and cameras. So I just literally sow four or five of the petunia for one pot and then just put the pack back in the in the Tupperware box in the fridge for the following year. And as long as you keep them cool <laughs> and dry and dark, they're going to be fine. For I mean, I've been sowing some for about five years from the same pack. So that makes it even more worthwhile. So maybe we have to plant, account that as, as plant six, or are we even on seven now? I can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> Gary, on to you for now, this sort of understory. So lots of ideas for, of, of things more at ground level and coming up to meet the subshrubs and the salvia level. That's right. Yeah. So I've called it ground cover, but I know a lot of people think of ground cover as things like albrecia and things or something that's like a carpet along the ground. But that's not really the, the look I'm sort of suggesting is it's more of the plants that will take over the ground and stop you from having to weed bare soil everywhere. You know, they just yes. dominate and create communities amongst your more structural planting. So that's very much where my, my self-seeders obsession comes in because I love anything that will just look after itself and slowly take over and create that wild natural look that you're looking for in your garden. Fabulous. There, there's so many, isn't there? There's there's so many to choose from, but like Origeron, we know Kavinskianus is fantastic for doing it. Fantastic. Foxgloves, Vabascums, Hesperus, mm. Honesty, Linaria, or Poppies. But the one that I'm going to pick out here is geranium bill wallace because it was one of the first plants i introduced to my small garden and i absolutely loved it because it was fairly new to me at the time and i couldn't believe the small sort of ultraviolet blue flowers that you get on the to stand out and again the, the flowering period is fantastic on it it's really early comes up it will set seed it will spread really quickly so you do have to edit it out if you don't want it everywhere but secondary flowers come on it it's even in flower in my garden now actually yeah. going into December. So it, it's a wonderful plant. Great story, actually, how I discovered it. I was I was going to a, a plantsman's nursery in Hampshire, um, a grower, Dave West, his name was, and I was just looking around his nursery. It was, it was closing down at the time, and there was a small patch of plants at the back of a, a, a polytunnel, and uh, I just caught that small blue flower, and I thought, what on earth is that? And mm. one of those finds that you sort of discover around the back of the nursery, if you like. And, yes. Um, yeah, he'd been growing it from seed himself all these years. 
And I took uh, probably two or three plants home with me. And now I think those two or three plants supply our nursery with 10,000 seeds a year. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. And now haven't you introduced to our list a white form? Isn't there a, isn't there a yes. Bill Wallace Alba now? Uh, yes, that's correct. Yeah, so it's it's still in development, okay. but we'll, we'll, we'll get it there. We'll, we'll sort of find enough supply of seed to come through for that, hopefully. But yeah, you can't really beat the, the blue flowers. I'm still bowled over by them. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that I think it's famous for is that rabbits don't eat it. And we have, you know, rabbit populations here on the farm go up and down, I'm afraid, depending on whether myxomatosis is on the rise or not. But in some years, particularly in the spring when the grass has yet to start growing in the fields, they come into the garden quite a bit. And what I find is quite a few of those plants that you've mentioned, so they don't seem to eat the foxgloves. They they don't sort of like the aromatic Mediterranean, so they don't like stachys. But also, interestingly, they don't eat geranium Bill Wallace at all. They eat, they eat the roses. Of course, Mr. McGregor's patch, they eat all the lettuce and all the salad leaves and all the annuals like the cosmos when we're planting them. But they don't eat geranium Bill Wallace. So, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. Um, that's a, a major other, as well as it's extraordinary, nine months of flowering, isn't it? On and off. It's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Great. And what, um, well, I'd like to add in that sort of color range, I guess, but this is a new plant completely to me, which we trialed two years ago, but then we planted en masse this in 2022, this year in lots and lots of pots. And I'm obsessed with it. It's called Nemesia Lady Lisa. And I just cannot tell you how long that flowered. And Nemesias, I saw them wild in South Africa, so I know that they're pretty drought resistant. And what we find is they flower a massive first flush, but then if you cut them back, literally just the heads and a little bit below the flower heads, they then flower again and again. And we definitely had Lady Lisa in flower by May, just when the tulips were finishing, which is mm-hmm. so useful because all our pots are being stripped out and all the tulips go and get planted in the cutting garden and there's a bit of a kind of bald bear season but the Nemesia Lady Lisa really was already doing it and it, it's still doing it right the way into the middle of autumn so I'm crazy about that that's a brand new plant to me but I'm really mad on it. All Nemesias are fantastic I think it's like you say it, it's it's a bedding plant essentially it's an annual yeah, yeah but it comes into flower so much earlier than many of the other varieties even late April I think and then by the time end of May is here, like you say, give it a quick prune back and you're blessed with another reblooming towards the end of the summer. Yeah. I, I quite like Denticulata. It's a species version of Nemesia. It's growing at Wisley at the moment. And that one is fairly hardy these days. And it, like you say, it's drought tolerant. It, they've got it growing underneath a, a pine tree, I believe, or an oak tree there. Wow. And it's just completely made a, a, a carpet amongst all the other plants that are spread lovely. So I think a lot of the new varieties that are coming through are hardier. Mm. And some people will find that they can get them through the winter and grow them as a, a, a tender perennial, if you like. Mm. Like that other thing that I think you introduced to our range, which is Persicaria. No, not Persicaria. Yeah, yeah. P- Persinata, is it called? No, sorry, Diacea. Persinata. Diacea. Yeah. yeah that's I right. Mean, South African again. Again, yeah. I think, and in some way related to the Nemesia family, but the Diaceas. I mean, extraordinary, that, that pink, that coral one, and, and there's now a new brighter pink and an apricot. But they, I mean, we had them in the Oast Garden here under planting 
dahlias in quite a big drift of rooted cuttings because it's incredibly easy to propagate. And I just can't tell you how long uh, they went on flowering. So I think for a small garden, they would have to be an introduction. We've, we've, we've literally completely gone off piece with our list. I, I, um, <laughs> I can't believe it. Many of the things we've chatted about weren't, weren't on what, we'd, what we thought we were going to talk about at all. But I, but I'm, I celebrate that. It's completely fine. So maybe a, a two or three more from you, Gary. Yeah, sure. I mean, we talked about how I structure a garden, but I think it's worth talking about also new plants which are coming through, which yeah. necessarily I haven't necessarily grown myself, but seen them being developed in the nurseries and slowly coming to the market as well. So I've worked in garden centres before, and a lot of the plants I've seen come through, I've always been a bit <laughs> unsure of because I see the breeding being pushed towards producing a more compact plant, yes. and these are said to be produced for smaller gardens, but I'm not too keen on a lot of them because I feel that the industry is pressurizing breeders to produce plants to fit on trolleys, to fit on bed ends in retail spaces. And it's not necessarily bred for the garden, it's bred for sales. Yes. And I've always tried to steer away from that and focus more on a, a natural shaped plant. But saying that, there is breeding coming through now of compact versions of old favorites and it's compact for a good reason. A lot of these plants, they, they, they don't need the structure, the, the plant supports that they've had to use in the past. So it's actually a benefit to the gardener, not just there for sales purposes. Mm. One that I'd love to mention is the Provskia bluzette. Ah. Uh, that's a new plant coming through for us next year. And it's a seed-raised Provskia, UK bred. And I think Provskia's very much closely related, if not the same classification as salvias now, oh. but nowhere near as popular. And I think oh, part of partly is that they can get so floppy, they're really tall, and then yes. all of a sudden they just fall apart in the garden yes. and they need that constant support around them. But this this variety is probably 50 centimeters maximum, mm. but doesn't need any support at all. And um, like, a, like a salvia, flowers for ages, good with drought, bees adore it. Oh. Uh, so it's a really good sub-shrub layer. Oh, that's certainly going straight on my list. Um, so we've got red jep and that without doubt. Oh, I love the sound of that. Any other new introductions? We've got an Apita Persian blue. Again, similar characteristics to the Perovskia. It's been bred to be less, if you like, messy. Mm -hmm. And the Peters in the past have a, had a bit of a tendency to fall apart and spread a bit too much in the border and um, squash the plants if you've not got too much space and they, they encroach onto the lawn of places and you end up cutting them back. This Nepita is fairly upright, a neat, tidy mm -hmm. habit, but with plenty of flowers all sticking their heads above the foliage. What sort of colour? It's like a, a periwinkle blue flower with the Ooh. purple calluses and underneath them. A bee magnet, absolutely. So, so many bees on one plant, it's unbelievable. How and lovely. they're scented, they're drought tolerant, long flowering. Uh, it's everything you'd look for in the plant for the, the gardens that we're going to have these days. That sounds so good. Okay, let's have one last one each. I think we've probably gone way over 12, and I, but I've, I've lost count now, so it doesn't matter. I think <laughs> definitely my last one that, that I think is an essential for a small garden would have to be an agapanthus. And for me, it would be navy blue or midnight blue. It's the same variety. And um, 
I work all the time with a photographer called Jonathan Buckley, and we have it in our catalogue called Navy Blue. And he says, I don't understand why you don't call it Midnight Blue. It's so much more romantic name. And he's right, really. <laughs> but anyway, it's, um, it's a very, very deep, um, not indigo, because that can become a black hole, but really rich blue. I adore it for five reasons, really, that the richness of the color of the flower, the fineness of the flower, it's not chunky. It's really delicate. It has really, really lovely foliage. I always think in pots, you want to think of them almost like narcissus. You don't want those great strap-like leaves that you sometimes get with the agapanthus headborne hybrids. You want more like chai foliage. And I wouldn't quite say that a midnight blue or navy blue is chive-like, but it's really quite delicate. So it looks nice at the front of a border or nice in a pot. It also really holds on to its seed heads very well. I mean, we've got another one in the garden here called Queen Mum that actually holds on to her seed heads right the way up until Christmas. But um, navy blue holds her seed heads really, really long and late in the season. So it looks great right into the winter. And uh, the final thing is it's just very easy and very quick to flower. So we divide ours every three years. And often, even the next year after division, it'll come straight back into flower again. So it's just a really good performer. So that's my my parting one. What's your parting one, Gary? I think, I mean, I've got a list, to be honest with you, but I'll go with Caryopteris sterling silver. Lovely. It's uh, a plant that I've, I've, I've grown it in both my previous gardens. I had a hedge of it in one garden, which is amazing because it's one of those plants that you hear it before you see it because the buzzing of the bees coming mm. from them is absolutely covered in bees throughout the summer. It's fairly late to flower, a caryopteris. It's almost like, um, would you describe it as like a dwarf buddleia almost? Because yes. of the way yes. that it grows and, and the flowers that it has in it and um, the amount of pollinators it attracts is unbelievable. Great. Uh, I've classed it as a, a subshrub layer as well because you do retain the structure above ground. Again, it's one of those that if you're on wet ground, it might struggle. But given the droughts that we're seeing and the heat that we're getting, I think it's perfect plant for the future. Great, great. Oh, Gary, well, it's been so nice to chat. Please, will you come back? And we're going to do another one very, very soon. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Grow Cookie to Range with me and Gary. And next week, we're actually going to extend this theme on small gardens. And I'm going to talk to a friend of mine who's a garden designer, particularly concentrating on small city gardens. She's based in London, Butter Wakefield. So I'm really looking forward to chatting to her about how to make use and design beauty in even a tiny space. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com.